start doing that, but I thought to start this, and I did this a little bit a couple of years ago, about three years ago, I did a little bit of a, a little series on how to study the Bible, and I want to do that again maybe a little bit more in depth. I don't want to hurry through this because I think this will really help you, and I don't want it to be all dry, but I want it to help you. I want it to, when you when you sit down and you're, you're in your word, um, make it come to life in you you read it, you know, bring that thing to life so that you understand um, what scripture is actually telling us. So, Lord, I just ask that you'll direct today, give us understanding, open our spirit, open our minds, and I praise you for all you do in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm, like I said, running a little bit late, but I don't want to hurry this. So, if I go too long, I'll just stop and continue next week. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing from whom thou hast heard them, learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good, good works. The key that I want to get into this morning is all scripture is given by inspiration. Sometimes people really misunderstand what that means. And so I'm going to try to get into that. In the Amplified, you know I enjoy the Amplified. I'm kind of a King James guy, but I do like the Amplified. It says that evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and of which you are convinced, holding tightly to the truth, knowing from whom you learned them and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the Hebrew scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus surrendering your entire self to him and having absolute confidence in his wisdom, power, and goodness. All scripture is God-breathed, given by divine inspiration, is profitable for instruction, for conviction of sin, for correction of error and restoration to obedience, for training in righteousness, learning to live in conformity to God's will, both publicly and privately, behaving honorably with personal integrity and moral courage so that the man of God may be complete and proficient, outfitted and thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love the way it brings out some of that stuff. It's a very 
clear. Inspired is not dictated. And this is where people get confused. God didn't call, uh, you remember uh, Lucy? What's her name is going to be called? Remember old Lucy, Lucille Ball, and they had that show, uh, the Lucy show, I think it was, and her boss was Mr. Mo- Mooney. Remember Mooney? When, she, when he wanted to dictate something, he would call her in, come in with your pad and paper, and she would come in, and he would dictate. He would speak, and she was supposed to write it all down. That's what secretaries did. When I go to court, there's a lady over there typing out something on her dictation thing. It's basically word for word what's going on in the court. Um what's being said, but God didn't dictate to his people what to write. He inspired them what to write. There's a vast difference. Inspired means divinely breathed in. It means that God breathed into them the uh, knowledge, the understanding, the uh, perception, whatever you might want to say. God revealed truths. Men described what God showed them or told them or what they sensed, what they felt. And this is very, very important because you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels right there together. They're all telling roughly the same story. Some of them, uh, some, of, some stories are in some of the Gospels and not in others or whatever, but the, all the, the story is the same in all those Gospels, but they're vastly different in their telling. Because they're inspired. If God had dictated to his men the, the message, they would have all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would have said the exact same thing. They would have been dictated. That's not what it was. It was God breathed into them, speaking to them in the middle of the night or in a dream or in a vision during the day or, or an audible voice. or I don't know how he did it. But he gave them what they needed through inspiration. It's like writing a story and... You know, I wrote a, a, a novel several years ago, and it was kind of, and I'm not claiming inspiration. I'm just telling you, trying to br- give an example of this. I just got this desire to write a novel, and in the course of working one night, pretty much the whole story came to me. It was just like the whole story laid out. I had it all. It, it was the strangest thing because it, I don't even know where it came from. And even the names, it was odd because I was walking across a college campus and I was trying to think of the name of the main character, the female main character, and I wanted an aristocratic uh, name that, that, that just sounded authoritative. And, and I'm walking and I'm running names through my brain and this girl walked by and I, I said, oh, hi, Victoria. And they went, that was it, Victoria, the name, my, my lead character right there, bam, it came to me. But because I had that, if you want to call it inspiration, I'm not saying it was that, but because of that, did that mean I sat down and typed the whole story without struggling, without battling? No, I, I battled with certain, with certain chapters and certain concepts and how it was going to, I had the story, but I had to put that story into print. And that print was my part of it, my contribution, so to speak. That's what the writers of the Gospels did. And I show you that nice little picture right there. And then I go like that and say, what did you see? <laughs> Saw a horse. <laughs> see, everybody here would see the same picture but different things. 
Some people saw the horse. Some people would say, oh, as well as room's lawn. Other, did you see the house? Some people, yeah, there you go. Was there a house? There's a house in there. Because, why is that? Because we're different people. We have different interests. We have different things that our eyes are drawn to. Same picture. See the house up in the corner? Yeah. Very nicely manicured lawn. You got the horse. You got the fence. You got the road coming through. All that beautiful picture, by the way. But this is what we're talking about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm just talking about the Gospels just there, but it applies to the whole Scripture. These are different men. They have different interests, different passions, different ways of viewing things. They learn differently. They understand differently. That's why the stories come out differently in the different books. Each person describes what they saw based on personal preferences, likes, or dislikes. If Dave and Robert and me all went to a car show, I would be drooling all over these nice, beautiful toys. You know, I would be doing that. I'd be looking at them things. Later on, somebody would say, was there any uh, Chevy Chevelles there? And I'd say, yeah, there was one over there. And Robert would say, whoa, there was three of them. And one was green, and one was blue, and one was yellow, and they're beautiful, and they had 383s in them, you know, whatever. And David would be saying, there was cars? All I saw was food vendors, you know. (laughs) It's a different way that we are drawn to things. The writers of the Gospels were no different. They're humans telling a story in different ways. Type of education and education level makes a completely, makes a big difference on the way you would relate a story. The way that you would bring something out. If you're a doctor, you're going to talk in in that sense. If you're a lawyer, if you're a police officer, whatever it is, your way of bringing that truth out would be weighed by that particular education that you have in your life. The type of inspiration. Was it audible, visual, or kinesthetic? We all learn that way. Some of us are audio. Uh, Most men are visual, but not all men. Most women are auditory, but not all women. Uh, My my son, you could pretty well just show him things, and he would be like, yeah, he could do it. Trisha, you could show her all day long. She wouldn't grasp it. She didn't get it. She had to feel it. She had to touch it. She had to, to put her hands in it to make it really start to, to grasp in her. And because of that, they express themselves differently. So did God speak to this person in an audio, audio, audible voice? Did he show him a vision? If you take one of the writers and, and he saw a vision and the other one heard the story, they would relate the story differently. Okay? There, there's a point to all this. I'm getting there. This is the main reason why so-called Bible contradictions are not contradictions at all. When you get into the Bible and you're looking at uh, two or three or four different renderings of the exact same story, minute facts will be different because different people saw it differently. I was just in a situation not too long ago where we had to to go in and, and take custody of an armed subject. My partner was behind me. I'm up front. I looked. I saw the guy hold both hands out. I ran in the door, and I grabbed the guy. Well, Cliff didn't see both hands. He saw one hand. So he didn't know that the guy was completely unarmed, but he went in because he was following me. So if we were both relating that story, wouldn't the story come out differently? I saw both hands. Cliff didn't. And so it's the situation as it unfolds in front of the person 
will come out differently. Resurrection contradictions examples. How many women came to the tomb on resurrection morning? Was it one as told in John, two as in Matthew, three as in Mark, or more? Like Luke would indicate. Which one is correct? They all are. Who did the women see at the tomb? One person, like in Matthew and Mark, or two, like in Luke and John? Was the tomb already open when they got there? Matthew says no. The other three say yes. Did Mary Magdalene recognize Jesus? Of course. She'd known him for years. At least Matthew says she did. But John and Luke make it clear that she didn't. So, how did that happen? Because we have different people relating the same incident. It used to be that you'd get in a lot of trouble if, uh, you know, you got, you were uh, supposed to be given a, uh, a witness account of something that happened to the police and what you said didn't actually turn out to be exactly what other people said or what the facts were at the time, but they started to realize that people don't always pick up all the exact same facts because that wasn't the core of the story. The truth is, all of it is true. Did God inspire them to write what they had been told or inspired them by telling them the story? You ever thought about that? Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're relating stories. Did God tell them what happened and tell them to write it? Or did he just inspire them to write what they had heard from the women who were at the tomb? Which one was it? I don't know. But that's another reason why the telling of the story may be somewhat different. Another thing, which disciples came to the tomb? Peter and John, right? So when you look at that, so only the gospel so of the gospel writers, only John was actually an eyewitness of what happened at the resurrection. The other ones were writing from something either that God had impressed upon them or that they had heard from somebody else. And, I, and I'm saying this to help you understand they will try to trip you up. The Bible is full of contradictions. It's not full of contradictions. It's just the way I'm telling you, no matter what happened, if we run, walked out here right now and five cars went by and people were shooting out the window, guns at everything, and we all dove down and everybody would have a different story. How many cars were there? She would say one, that one, she would say five, and somebody over there would say 22. You know, how many shots were fired? Three, eight, 14, 175. That's just the way people relate the story. This is the important thing, though. The crux of the story, the essence of the story, each writer told a truthful story as they saw, heard, or understood what took place. And all of the factual elements are there. All of the stories are factually correct. The relevance. What was relevant about the resurrection? The resurrection. <laughs> That's what was relevant. Doesn't matter if there were one, was that one angel or three angels there. Doesn't matter if one person went or if my wife and I decided to run to, to Walmart to get potatoes uh, and, and we get in the car and we took two grandkids with us and somebody calls us and says, what are you doing? Oh, Deb and I are running to Walmart. Would that be an inaccurate statement? No. If we picked up a hitchhiker along the way. And we passed Terry, and somebody said, hey, 
be the pastor? Oh, yeah, they were just going to Walmart. It looked like there were three people, him and his wife and, and some other guy that I didn't know. Well, would that be a factual statement? Yes, but you're still not counting the grandkids. But somebody else, as we get up uh, to the stop sign, a tiger there walks up to the door and says, Hey, guys, how you doing? Oh, great. Oh, you see the pastor? Yeah, it was him and his wife and some other guy I didn't know and two kids. All the stories are correct. That's the point of what I'm trying to make here. They try to trip you up with silliness, and they're not contradictions. They're the way people express what they witnessed, what they saw. Folks, vocabulary, some things you need to learn. You don't need to know these words, but you need to know the concept. If you're going to study Scripture well, understand what's going on. Hermeneutics is a branch of knowledge that deals with the interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary text. When you're studying the Bible, you are involved in hermeneutics. That's what you're doing, is drawing, is is learning from that text, is studying that. Exegesis is the critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of Scripture. You don't need to remember that word. It's not that important. Exegesis literally means to draw out of. That means you're holding that Bible in your hand, and you are drawing out of that Bible truth. And understanding. You are you are sucking it out of there. Well, there's a counter to that. It's called eisegesis. It literally means to pour into. That is modern biblical uh, study today. That means you take your Bible, you say, I already believe this, now let me find it in there. That's eisegesis. That's putting into the text rather than drawing out of the text. That makes sense? Eisegesis, the interpreter makes scripture says what he wants it to say. Exegesis, the interpreter makes the scripture says what God has to say. There's a difference. It's not the greatest English they use in that illustration, but it still was helpful. (laughs) But I just want you to understand the difference. And this is a serious problem in modern theological circles. People today most of the time operate in eisegesis. They, they already know what they believe, and they're going to find it in that Bible. And no matter what you believe, you can find it in that Bible if you reject all the rest of the Bible. What does the Word tell us? The whole Word rightly divided. That is our job. Eisegesis. You are worthy of God's love. God wants to make your life what you want it to be. Your happiness is the most important thing. That's eisegesis. But this man is studying scripture. And the word says God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. According to the language of the context, the day is a regular day. This is an argument you wouldn't believe. The argument that goes on in theological circles about how long the day was in the book of Genesis. Any third grader can understand English. God, in his infinite wisdom, looked down through time and said, My little dummies are going to argue among themselves of what I meant when I said day. So just so they can't really get an argument out, I'm going to put in there, and the more evening and the morning were the first day. God answered the question. How long was the day? 24 hours. He made sure that we couldn't even miss that. 
doesn't stop them. They still fight about it. Crazy. And I threw out a couple that just come to mind. Bibli- examples of biblical eisegesis. Deborah, that poor lady has been so maligned, mishandled, twisted, and, and, and this whole different person has been created in Deborah. Anybody went to study Deborah any? Interesting. Yeah. If you listen to modern theological, in the modern theological circles and most preachers nowadays, Deborah was like Zena the warrior princess. She had the sword and she was out fighting battles and wars and conquering the enemy. Sit and read Judges sometime and get to the story of Deborah. She was not a fighter. She was a mother to Israel. By her own words, she said, I am a mother to Israel. And she wasn't anywhere near the battle. Barak was being a coward and she kicked him in the backside. That's basically what it was. Get out there and be a man and and do what you're supposed to do. And he took off and fought the war, and she sat up on the mountain in a lawn chair drinking iced tea. She was not in the war. But Isagesis creates this other person out of this poor lady that that does not exist. Another one that, because I have a Pentecostal background, this one often comes to my mind, and that most Pentecostal churches teach that the speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is absolutely no scripture anywhere in the Bible, any place, that even infers such a thing. Not there. And when you ask them, they say, well, it's because of a pattern in the book of Acts. We don't build doctrine on patterns. We don't, you don't do that. And it's not even a complete pattern. It's like six out of the nine places it's mentioned or something like that. It's They mention speaking in tongues. That's an eisegesis. It's putting into the text what is not there for their own purposes, I guess. Another question to ponder. Do we believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible? You're all going, this is a trick question. The reason you are asking yourself that or saying that to yourself is because this is a trick question. That's why you're doing that. Because most churches, most denominations in the fundamental or evangelical fields will say, we believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Hmm, do we? Look at this sentence. Hey, hot mama, how about you hook up with your favorite stud and we go down to the grease pit over in Little Tokyo and choke down some grub? Now, I want you to imagine a minute that you're Chinese. You're just learning English. All you know is the translation of words. You really don't understand the whole nuance of the language yet. You're sitting down and you're reading this sentence and this is what you figure. The literalist would read that a warm-natured woman with kids was going to stab her best piece of lumber and then jog to a mechanic's garage in Japan where they'll forcibly eat some worms. (laughs) So do we take the Bible literally? No, it's not meant to be taken literally. The Bible is full of prose. It's full of analogy and metaphor and poetry and all those things. We don't talk to each other literally. We don't do that. I mean, it would be kind of weird if you started taking things absolutely literally that people say to you. Because the Bible is written by people and they're writing the way that they 
talk. But along with that comes the need, in order for us to understand Scripture, we have to realize where it's coming from. Who is writing this thing? Where are they? We must learn the nuance of language. Was it written 4,000 years ago with Babylonian influence? We know that the, the Bible was written by Jews, right? But 4,000 years ago, they were captive in Babylon. You're captive in a foreign nation. A lot of those characteristics and actions, behaviors, whatever, are going to bleed over into you. You're not going to stay, uh, you know, individually Jewish. There's going to be a different influence. Was it written 2,000 years ago with Roman influence? That makes a difference on what the Scripture says and the way it, uh, different things uh, relate in Scripture. It definitely wasn't written in 2016 America. And this is where a lot of folks in Western countries get in trouble. They sit down with their American thinking and their American ideals and their American philosophies and they try to read the Bible with that, inside that scope, and that does not work. The Bible was not written in, the, in a Western nation, and it wasn't written in contemporary times. Language continually changes. It differs according to time as well as geography. Some examples. Anybody know what the 1920s flapper girls were? Some people do. Some people don't. But, you know, if you were living in the 1920s, you know what the flapper girls were. They were the crazy ones. They were the party gals of the 20s. You know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you who to ask here to ask, to, that can tell you a firsthand experience if there's any. But I was watching a movie not too long ago, and they were referring to the women as dames. When's the last time you heard that? <laughs> Nowadays, you call them a dame, they'll probably slap you. <laughs> In the 1970s, they evolved into chicks. Nineteen fifty things were hot. By the nineteen sixties they were right on. Then in the seventies they were far out. <laughs> you remember that, some of you don't, right? Far out, man, far out. <laughs> Language changes with time as well as geography. So when you're studying scripture, you have to understand the difference not only in geography, but in the time that you're dealing with. The most contentious doctrines are often the most clearly defined. I find that amazing. Uh, I just mentioned one with fighting over what, how, how long a day was in the book of Genesis. No argument there. Clearly understood. There are volumes of theological books arguing that point. The gap theory and the different things that they fight over. Arguing over how long when Bible says absolutely irrevocably 24 hours but that's how it is it's not that they're it's not understood it's not accepted that's the hard thing when you're getting into scripture is not necessarily understanding what it says it's what you do when you're reading that scripture and you have a belief this way and all of a sudden it goes wham against the bible and you go uh oh uh i'm at an impasse here do i accept what that says or not Personal bias. We do that. We all do that. We have our own personal biases. We have what we do like and what we don't like. Preconceived ideas. We have ideas on how the way the way God should be. God should act. The things that he should do. 
uh, one of the things that they argue endlessly about and they want to throw in our face is about slavery. And some people fight and argue and say the Bible never condones slavery and other ones are fighting and arguing and say slavery is, is biblical. Slavery is biblical. I'm sorry. Our personal preferences may not like that. Our personal sensibilities may say that's wrong, slavery's evil, but God used it to punish disobedient nations. He did that. And you can have a personal bias that says, I don't like slavery. You know what? I don't either. But God didn't ask me. I wasn't even <laughs> I wasn't even in there. He never <laughs> even got my opinion. Denominational influence. You know, when I was a kid, my I told you my grandma drug me to church kicking and screaming and the church of god there in uh, in tallville very uh church of god anderson came out of kind of a wesleyan uh background so i i had that perception in my mind then she uh, forced dad to send me to a christian school which was baptist so my thinking became very baptist because our that's what our studies were that's what the preaching was was from a very baptist perspective well then i went to Germany and I, in the military. I came back. I went to church, got saved in a Pentecostal church. All of a sudden, my thinking kind of changed to the Pentecostal way of thinking. And so denominational or even church bias begins to get in there and sway how we think. Even now, I, I sometimes I do something and, and, and Peggy isn't even in here. She's kind of my little watchdog, you know, my what, is, what do they do that with the candidates all the time? The uh, fact-checking. She fact-checks me all the time. Peggy is the one who keeps me on my toes. And she'll send me an email. Is that really biblical when you're talking to her? You know? And I love it. So <laughs> sometimes I look at it and say, you know, she's right. Other times I say, no, she's wrong. But there have been times when Peggy has pointed out things to me, and I thought, you know, I just kind of did that that way for so long because that's the way we did it in the Pentecostal church. But she's right. There's really, it's not here. It's not there. And it, it kind of helps me to evaluate what I'm doing. I don't mind that. Upbringing has all the makes all the difference in the world about how we approach Scripture. People tend to view God the way that they viewed their father, their earthly father, which sometimes is good, and that can also be very bad. Education. Again, big difference on how we interpret Scripture. And uh, I think of something an old man said one time, old pre preacher, that I think is just so true. He said, you don't become a Calvinist by studying Scripture. You become a Calvinist by studying Calvin. And there's a lot of truth to that. And you can throw the other side of that out and say, you don't become an Arminius by studying Scripture. You become an Arminius by studying Arme Arminius. Uh, you can do that either way. The point is, study Scripture, not Calvin. Not Presbyterian, not Church of God, Assembly of God, Baptist, study the Word. What does it say? That's not as easy as you think. To get into study of Scripture, and I'm <clears throat> running you a little late. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do. This is what you've got to do if you're going to study Scripture and do it right. You sit down with your Bible, whatever, stand up on chairs and do stand on your head, whatever. But when you open that thing, you've got to somehow take all of that out of your brain. Everything you've ever heard in church, everything you've ever heard a preacher say, the, the, your favorite preacher who you think is the most dead-on preacher in the world, put it out. 
what your mama taught you, what the church taught you, your own biases, and open that word and pray, God, open me, show me. There was actually a slide or two on this, but I don't know where they went, but I'm just giving it to you. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> open this to me. Show me what the book actually says. Show me what you're actually telling me here. And then we have to be willing to accept the answer because that's not always easy to do, especially when we run into those things where we believed it the same way for 30 or 40 years, and all of a sudden we get into the Word for ourselves and we're going, oh, wow, that, that didn't happen. I mean, I can think of times when I was, uh, you know, I was in the Pentecostal church and I was new and just starting to study Scripture, and I would go to somebody and I would go with a clear discrepancy. Uh, why do we believe this and the Bible says this? And they'd say, oh, that was just cultural for the day. That was the answer? Really? That was it. That was the answer, the cultural for the day. That's not how it works. Get into the Word. Find out what it says. You've got to put away everything that you believe already, all those preconceived ideas, and embrace it fresh every time. And say, God, I want to know what you truly are trying to tell me in this Word. I don't want to know what... David Wilkerson said, or Loran Livingston said, or Carter Conlon, or Wesley, or Moody, or any of them. Tell me what the book says, and how does it apply to my life? Because, folks, I am fallible, and so is every other preacher. I don't have a handle on that book. Neither does any other preacher. That's why it should become fresh and vibrant to you. And it'll be amazing to you. God put me through, I called it the boot camp, this period of time when it seemed like every time I opened the word, it was just like, pow, just mighty word. It was awesome. And God trained me more in, in that few month period than I've had my whole Christian experience. God was showing me and revealing things out of his word to me. It was, it was incredible understanding that I had during that time, and I kind of yearned to have that back again. But... I want the Word of God to be fresh to you. And this is just the beginning. I'm going to go further, but I'm going to shut up because I know we're running late. Any questions? Okay. Either I covered everything really, really well, or you're all asleep. One of the two. There were no questions. <laughs> Let's stand. Father, thank you for your Word. It is an amazing blessing. That word is incredible, and we are so blessed to have it. Help us, Lord, to have a hunger for it. Help us desire to get into that word. Help us to draw understanding. Help us to be open to your spirit as it leads, Lord. And I just thank you for all that you do, and thank you for these people. It's such a blessing. Love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.